The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. The Biden administration's foreign policy efforts are at center stage this week, while here at home, some compromise on Capitol Hill, but big funding questions ahead. We turn now to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. And welcome to you both. It's good to see you. Me Let's too, jump Anna. right into foreign policy and that big meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi. A year in the making, a year of rising tensions between the two nations. Jonathan, the bar for success for that summit was low, I think it's fair to say. Just reestablish communications and reset. Did they meet that bar? I think they did meet that bar. I mean, it, yes, this meeting was a year in the making. It was a meeting that had to happen. It was a meeting that, quite frankly, I think the world was happy to see. You can't have the two global superpowers at each other's throats as they have been over the last year with, you know, Chinese military planes buzzing, U.S. military planes um, and other things that, that have been happening. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that President Xi came to the United States to the APEC conference um, or outside the APEC conference in San Francisco, met with the president of the United States, um, had what seems like, looks like good meetings, it's all for the good. They need, China, China and the United States need to talk to each other. Even if they are in competition with each other, they still need to talk to each other. David, what were your key takeaways from that summit? Yeah, I found it uh, quite heartening, actually. Uh, I've, you know, like so many people, I've been alarmed by the Im an intense military buildup uh, China has been doing. Uh, their military spending has been really expanding at an explosive pace. And in, because of their superior manufacturing base, in many ways, they can outdo us. So, for example, they can produce 21 nuclear subs a year. We can struggle to get one or two. Uh, and that military buildup made me think, you know, you don't spend that much money unless you're thinking of doing it. And she clearly wants to take over uh, Taiwan at some point in his uh, reign. Uh, and so I was looking at a, a possibly at another war, uh, yet another war in the world uh, sometime in the next year. And that looks a lot less likely, in part because she clearly projected, understand there's been a shift in the balance of power over the last year. The Biden administration has done a good job building alliances, but most importantly, the Chinese economy is suffering. Uh, for the first time in 40 years, the U.S. economy is growing faster than the Chinese economy. The Chinese economy has the, uh, this real estate crash. And so it really needs American investment and Western investment and, and uh, Western import or things they can export. And so he clearly seemed to project the idea that he understands his vulnerability. It doesn't mean he's changed his goals. But there seems to be a sense that uh, that sense of triumphalism that could lead him to, to hubris and to an invasion of Taiwan, it seems a little less likely now. We do know among the topics the two presidents discussed were those wars in Ukraine and in Gaza. And I want to ask you both about some of that growing concern we've been seeing here in the U.S. with that last conversation from with Laura and her guests referred to. That We should be clear, overall American support for Israel remains high among the majority of Americans. But as the war goes on and we've seen the Gazan death toll soar, we are seeing this shift. Here are some poll numbers from our NewsHour NPR Maris poll earlier this week when people are asked about the Israeli response, about 38 percent now say it's about right, and about 38 percent also say it's too much. That second 38 percent is worth noting because that is up 
12 points in just the last month. So Jonathan, is the White House doing enough to message to those folks whose concerns are growing? Um, I don't, I, well, clearly not. Um, because as we saw in, in Lauren's piece, um, whatever the administration is doing, is not, it's not getting through, or um, folks just feel that uh, Israel, uh, in, in responding to the terrorist attacks against it, is going too far. But we knew this was going to happen. I remember in the aftermath of, of uh, October 7th, the conversation moved very quickly to, from Israel has the right to defend itself, mm -hmm. to how, why, how long will that window stay open? Because um, past practice has been, if Israel gets attacked, it, it responds with overwhelming force. As the death toll goes up, as the destruction goes up, as the pictures, the heart-rending pictures come back into American homes, we're going to see that too much go up, which then gets back to the bigger question, and that is, it's not so much the messaging of the White House and whether the American people hear it, it's whether, whether the messaging and the pleading from the White House, from mm -hmm. the President and the Secretary of State on down to Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to um, remember that he's a small-D democratic country and must abide by the, the rules of war, mm -hmm. whether that's getting through. And that is the, that, to me, is the bigger question. David, the further away we move from the horrors of that day on October 7th, and I, like many others, have seen the videos that the Israeli officials shared. It is horrific, and it does not leave you. We know U.S. lawmakers are now seeing some of those videos of the Hamas terror attack. But the further away we get from that day, concern here does grow. So what do you make of that increase here among Americans watching the war unfold? Yeah, I think the big story here is that uh, there's been a rupture between what liberals and progressives. And so if you look at Joe Biden, Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, people you would call liberals, they argue that, listen, we've had ceasefires. We've had multiple ceasefires with Hamas. And every time they use the ceasefire as an excuse to rearm and reload, and then they break the ceasefire and you get more and more bloodshed. And so the argument they make is we can't go through this ceasefire rhythm over and over and over again. We just have to solve the problem. The old strategy was just failing. And so that's their case. And then more on the progressive side, uh, they've shifted and adopted a policy which has not been the traditional democratic policy of more or less one state from the river to the sea is what gets chanted. And so it's not clear to me what they think that one state looks like, but it's clearly not the traditional policy we associate with the Democratic Party, which has been very supportive of, of Israel. And I think on, it's not only on the Middle East, on a bunch of other issues, you're seeing this beginning, this rupture between progressives who tend to be younger and, and liberals who tend to be older. And it, we're seeing it uh, in spades in the, in the case of Israel-Gaza policy. I do want to get to Capitol Hill because we do have a little bit of good news, and I like to be able to say that. There's, <laughs> there was some compromise among lawmakers with Democratic help. Speaker Mike Johnson did get a temporary funding bill through the House, passed the Senate. The president has now signed it. They've sort of kicked the can a little bit down the road here. But, Jonathan, tell me about Speaker Johnson's approach here to bring the hardliners, address them in this way, get Democratic help to get this temporary bill across the line right now. Look, I was a, a big skeptic, uh, very skeptical of the new Speaker's ability to avert a government shutdown. I was preparing for a government shutdown. Uh, and instead, 
he came up with this odd laddered, uh, whatchamacallit thing. And that we he, have a that new I, phrase here now, What's right? it called? Laddered It's a laddered, laddered continuing resolution. resolution. Yes. Um, the first one ending January 19th and the last, second one ending on February 2nd. And he did it with, over, <laughs> with overwhelming Democratic votes. Basically, he did the statesman thing. He kept the government open. What he also did was do the exact same thing that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy did that got him booted and made him former Speaker McCarthy. And so you hear there are rumblings from the House Freedom Caucus about they, they don't like this. And so I see the Speaker as being in, in, right in the middle of a vice. Mm -hmm. Motion to vacate on one side and on the other side, a bunch of Democrats who are willing to help him govern the country and keep the government open as long as he keeps doing the right thing. I don't know how long Speaker Johnson lasts, but I'm happy he has given us this good news to talk about. David, how long will those House Freedom Caucus members grant him a grace period? Uh, you know, this is one case where my uh, completely unrealistic optimism paid off. <laughs> uh, glad that my temperament is that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think a couple things happen. The first, uh, what you believe is depends on where you sit. And once you become the speaker uh, and you actually have responsibility, power tends to make people more responsible uh, and more sober. Not in the case of Donald Trump, but in the okay, case good. of I'm most people. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that, David. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think that happened. I think the Democrats looked, and the last time they didn't help, and McCarthy lost his seat, they wound up with an even more conservative speaker. So why continue that process? Uh, and so I think at the end of the day, I think people decided we can't have yet another catastrophe on our watch that's self-inflicted. Uh, and so there was enough sanity to, to do the right thing. Jonathan, we only have a minute left, but I have to ask you about the latest in the George Santos saga <laughs> before we go on. Just a quick look here at what the House Ethics Committee report listed in, in terms of how he misused campaign funds. We can just leave that up while we talk about this. But they've tried to expel him before. They are moving to expel him again. He says he will not run for re-election. Will he get expelled this time? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yes? Yeah. Because you've got the New York Republicans who desperately want him out. They've been trying to get him out before this uh, ethics report came out. And do yourself a favor and read the ethics report. I mean, I've been in Washington a long time. I've read some ethics reports. But mm. this one is breathtaking. Why? What stuck it, out to you? Well, because the guy is, it's like a pyramid scheme. He's robbing here and paying himself there. And, and the stuff he spent money on, stuff at thousands of dollars at Hermes, thousands of dollars at, at Ferragamo, uh, purchases at OnlyFans. And we just, uh, it's not a furniture store. So the fact that he um, is, he's out. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. He <laughs> is out. David, you have about 20 seconds. What would you like to say? Well, he doesn't look like he wears Hermes, so I'm, I'm impressed. I don't know where that, that clothing's going to. Uh, you, know, I, you know, there's an argument to be made the, and that has been made. You shouldn't expel somebody who hasn't been convicted of a crime because it's too politically temptation. But this guy deserves to be expelled, and I expect, I agree with Jonathan, he's going to get expelled. And let me just say, as we go into this Thanksgiving holiday week, I am grateful for you both. Thank you so much. Good to see you. You too, Amna. Good to see you.